You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. Could it be the secret to a Peloton rebound? The bike maker finally debuts its long-awaited rower, but will customers fork over more than $3,000 for it? We'll discuss. Plus, Web3 meets 5G in a first-of-its-kind deal. T-Mobile is teaming up with Nova Labs to launch the first crypto-powered mobile service. We'll talk to the CEO later this hour. And how Solana is trying to tackle everyone's energy crypto problems, one blockchain at a time. Co-founder Anatoly Yakovenko is with us. Peloton launching its long-awaited rower, aiming to expand the fitness company's appeal and help it reverse that sales slide. It'll start taking orders for the Peloton row and begin initial deliveries to U.S. customers in December. Our very own Mark Gurman joins us now for more details on this. So, Mark, you've been reporting on this rower for a long time now. Our customer's going to pay for it. I certainly think Peloton has a group of consumers that want to build out their own home gym, where they own a Peloton Row, where they own a Peloton Bike Plus, where they own a Tread, where they own the Peloton Guide, and they subscribe to their $44 a month package, right? But in terms of the overall Peloton story, I don't think the Row device moves the needle. Right now, this is a US-only launch. This is a very premium price product. It comes in between $500 and $1,500 more than the main competitors. But it's everything you would want from Peloton in a rowing machine. I just don't think rowing has that place in the market that a bike or tread might where people are going to rush out to buy this thing unless you are one of those fitness enthusiasts, right? So I think there is limited appeal compared to their other products. So I don't think this changes the Peloton story very much. And you see that in the stock today, still down about 3% and down about 1% for the week. But obviously more hardware, more product offerings is a good thing. And then one interesting point I will make about the row is that they're really pushing the content subscription. If you buy a bike or bike plus, you do get a few basic classes for free and you don't need to pay for that $44 a month Peloton subscription. Not the case with the row. To get any of the tailored content for rowing, you need to pay that fee, which could drive additional revenue over the long term. What does 
Peloton think about how much this is really going to change their situation? I mean, do you know how much they're projecting? I mean, do they think this is, you know, more of a niche product or do they have higher hopes? So when Peloton announced their most recent earnings about a month ago now, tucked in several paragraphs now, is a change to the reporting structure. They're no longer guiding full years in advance, right? And so although we have Q1 earnings coming up later in the year, we don't really have an estimate for their fiscal 2023. This product won't officially start shipping until December, which the company has as their fiscal Q2. So we really have no way to know how this is going to benefit the company uh, financially at this point. My guess is given the launch will be US only, given the high price point, it will be pretty incremental probably throughout fiscal 2023. You know, who can guide guide that far ahead though anymore? I mean, Apple did away with guidance long ago. I mean, should that be our expectation uh, anymore, especially in a massive downturn? You know, my personal opinion is that Apple has been making the right decision not guiding, right? If I'm running a company, you basically only want to do as much as you're legally required to do. Apple went away from iPhone unit sales a few years ago. That coincided with the greater focus on revenue versus units as they raised ASPs. I think you're seeing a similar thing happen with Peloton here, where the individual units, some of the individual numbers, the long out forecasts really are not as important as the overall revenue number. The other thing I'll say about Peloton forecasts is that they've been missing, right? Their guidance the last several quarters at this point, things have been so in flux for the company that it's really impossible for them to really seriously guide, you know, more than a quarter out. They've made pretty fundamental changes to their, you know, their financial structure and their operational structure recently. They've had many layoffs. I think they've laid off about 4,000 people across calendar 2022 at this point. So clearly many changes being made to their cost structure there. They moved away from in-house logistics and some in-house operations. Uh, They've stopped manufacturing equipment in-house and they're relying on outside manufacturers. Interestingly enough, they're relying on some of the same manufacturers that Apple uses to build some of their latest products. So you're seeing a big cost structure change there. And I think you'll hear more about how those cost changes are going to improve their bottom line probably sometime in October or November. Meantime, you've got other companies like SoulCycle moving in and trying to take advantage of of Peloton's struggles. I mean, are they, you know, going to be trying to turn around in a in, in a totally different fitness landscape? You know, I think Nordic Track is probably you know licking their chops right now when they saw that Peloton row price point. <laughs> I checked Nordic Track's website uh, earlier this week, and their rowing machines top out at eighteen hundred dollars. Right? Obviously, the products are comparable in some of their functionality. Peloton is really pushing their AI, their machine learning integration. There's actually a few cool, you know, personalization tweaks in the Peloton Row where they use AI and your own personal pace targets that you set to interact with the content that plays on the screen. So depending on your pace target or who's using the machine, uh, the the instructor will give you, you know, different goals and such. So it's actually pretty cool from what I've seen and been told by the company of how it all works together. And I think that is one key differentiator. The question for many consumers are those you know, nice to haves, that more luxurious element, more personalization, is that worth the extra $1,000? I think for some people who maybe already be paying $1,800 for a rower, maybe another $1,000 is not too much, especially if you're already in the Peloton ecosystem where you're paying $44 a month and that gets you access to content on all of your Peloton machines. I wish I knew how many people own more than one piece of Peloton equipment. I think that would be a key metric to know. (laughs) 
I, I, my, my sense is it's not a huge number, but you know, maybe times are changing. Uh, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, thank you so much as always for your reporting. Meantime, the investor known as the SPAC King says he's winding down two of his blank check companies. Chamath Pali Hapatia failed to find companies to successfully take public. He's now going to return more than a billion and a half dollars to investors. He says valuations and volatility, the two biggest barriers to closing deals. dry summer here in California with the state continuing to experience longer wildfire seasons as a direct result of climate change. And while it's possible to be on the lookout for fires, it is often already too late by the time they're spotted. So a new startup has devised a computer vision enabled system to catch the beginnings of wildfires before they become megafires. It's called Pano AI. Just got $20 million in new funding from Initialized Capital. Partner Kim Mike Cutler joins us now to talk a little bit more about this investment. So Kim, talk to us about how the technology works, given that a lot of these fires are starting in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, what they have is a large uh, full stack hardware software platform that enables them to to visualize a huge range of territory. And that's paired with software and computer vision that that identifies wildfire fire starts like smoke plume, multiple cameras, you can kind of triangulate where they're starting from. Um, And so I think it's I think it's really, you know, I, I, I grew up in California. And, you know, it's important to note that wildfire is actually a very natural and normal part of the California ecosystem. Our environment and trees and plants and everything are actually evolved to burn. Our most iconic plants, even like sequoia trees, require fire to actually reproduce. But over the last 100 years, as the United States is engaged in, you know, a practice of fire suppression and combined with climate change, um, you know, a modest degree, you know, a modest change in temperature influences aridity, uh, the lack of humidity, and, um, you know, creates more, you know, long and longer dry seasons, which enables small fires to get wildly out of control. And so, being able to have a system that enables you to recognize when fires start within 15 minutes of them starting on one of these very high risk days, um, you know, can allow us to manage uh, our wildfire issue more predictably. That said, of course, you know, we are in a system where it is going to happen more often. We're going to we're going to live in a world where we're going to have to have more prescribed and managed burns as well. Kim, you used to be a tech journalist before you became an investor. Talk to us about the pivot to climate investing. Um, you know, I think if you look at my body of work, I've always been really engaged with these kind of really tangible problems that affect everyday lives, whether that's housing affordability, uh, job mobility, socioeconomic mobility, um, and climate is obviously you know, increasingly a piece of that. I think it's important to note that initialized capital, um, we've actually been investing in companies that have, that that address climate uh, change and emissions. We've done it for many, many years. There are many companies in the portfolio, including Runwise, which helps thousands of buildings manage their energy usage and therefore, you know, reduce emissions. We have companies like Albedo, which recently got a huge up round from Breakthrough Energy Ventures that is doing low flying satellites uh, to low flying satellites so that we can have really accurate imagery of of, you know, our terrain emissions and, and, and heat sources and all the kinds of stuff like that. And then I'm, I also led a deal in cul-de-sac, which is doing car-free neighborhoods. And it's actually launching its first car-free community at the end of this year and in January in Tempe. And, you know, transportation is 27% of, of, of U.S. emissions. So we've actually been doing it for quite 
a while. Um, but of course, you know, climate tech in general is having a second wave. You know, there was an earlier wave like 10, 15 years ago um, when earlier venture capital firms were doing clean tech. And obviously in the last five years, um, it's becoming un undeniable. It is here. It is now. You know, we all remember the orange day from two years ago when we walked outside and we couldn't see the sun. Right. Um, you can't ignore it anymore. And, and therefore, we really have to come together as a society, you know, whether that's through the incredible $370 billion Inflation Reduction Act, you know, the, the federal government just that Biden just signed. And we also have to do it in the private sector with lots of entrepreneurs attacking all kinds, all sides of this problem as well. Right. Remember the orange day well. I wonder, though, we're, you know, now we're in the midst of this massive downturn. Is that denting the momentum behind climate investing at all? You know, I think it's 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 actually kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, climate tech is actually one of the spots that is still very competitive for deals right now. There's a lot of capital flowing into it, particularly at the earlier stages. Um, I think there's a number of forces kind of creating pressure for that, which is just obviously the immediacy and scale of the problem. Um, but also, you know, there are a lot of limited partners um, into a lot of different other, you know, funds that like that want capital deployed quickly and so we're seeing a lot of at least at the early stage lots of lots of climate deals are continuing to happen and continuing to move forward and they're continuing to be competitive now you've commented and reported on san francisco culture for years and i'm so curious what your take is on the recovery or the lack or the lack thereof of san francisco coming out of the pandemic what's your sense of how hard tech culture has been hit if it can recover, and if there's really a reason startups need to be in San Francisco anymore. Sure. Um, so I have, I mean, I have many thoughts, but I could do a, I could do a lot longer, uh, you know, more time. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, on, on, on the, you know, startup side, you know, I've, I've actually shared a lot of data from our portfolio during and throughout the pandemic, showing that we went from, you know, San Francisco obviously being the leading place that companies would have a headquarters to, you know, distributed um, or, or remote teams kind of surpassing that. But San Francisco was still like the number one physical destination that 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 companies wanted to be located in. Um, I think on the government side, I mean, you know, the, the, there was a great. 10 years that the, the city had, you know, in terms of tax revenues, companies being founded there, and it kind of overplayed its hand. And I think it would have been really important for, say, you know, you know, the board of supervisors, even the mayor, who's generally been supportive of tech, to come out earlier and say that, you know, really wanting to partner with, with employers here. And even now, like two or three years in, you don't really get the sense that any of, you know, aside from the mayor's office, like any of the leadership in the city really wants companies here. Um, and I know that doesn't make or break a decision, but like, it, it's definitely like you can compare and contrast the leadership of different cities and, you know, see where, where, you know, people feel really excited about being. And so I, I do think that tone matters a lot. All right. Uh, well, appreciate you joining us. Initialized Capital Partner, Kim Mai Cutler. Uh, good to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Well, NASDAQ is making its first major push into crypto. The second largest stock exchange will start by offering custody services for Bitcoin and Ether to its institutional clients. This will put NASDAQ in competition with crypto firms like Coinbase and BitGo to a certain extent. Coming up, a huge day for the car industry with a big EV order from Hertz and a $1 billion warning from Ford. What's that all about? We'll tell you next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. 
Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A suburb of Shanghai is being touted as China's new Silicon Valley. Lingong is quickly becoming a semiconductor and EV manufacturing hub. Quick Takes Charlie Ju explains. This is Lingang, a suburb of China's financial center of Shanghai. Over the past few years, tens of billions of dollars have poured into this small town. I'm currently in Lingang Special Area, which is part of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. Three years ago, President Xi Jinping identified it as a frontier hub for future industries, you know, from artificial intelligence to electric vehicle and from chip making to biomedicine. Those are the industries that China wants to dominate in the 21st century. They're also at the heart of the competition between China and the U.S. China needs to import $430 billion of semiconductors annually to build iPhones, drones, laptops, and other electronics because it has very little high-end chip-making capabilities of its own. That, in turn, is forcing the Chinese government to step up its own indigenous innovation and boost self-sufficiency in order to rely less on foreign technology in the future. Quick takes Charlie Ju there. Meantime, rental car giant Hertz announced it'll buy 175,000 EVs from GM over the next five years. Meantime, GM's crosstown rival Ford saw its stock sink by the most in 11 years as global inflation and supply chain paint hurts its bottom line. Covering it all, who else but our Ed Ludlow. Can you square the circle for us, Ed? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge day for the industry and neither piece of news helped stock market very much at all. For, for Hertz, it's really interesting, right? Because they have been very active in trying to electrify their rental fleet. Remember, they've already got deals with others, but they have this objective of 25% of their rental fleet being electrified by 2024. And this is quite aggressive, right? At the time where GM's transitioning to electric drivetrain, 175,000 EVs over a five-year period is a lot of cars. And it's not just one of their lines. They're talking about Buick, Caddy, Chevy, and they're going to start shipments of the Bolt EV and EUV as soon as the first quarter of next year. So this seems tangible. But again, look at your screen. It didn't do much to support the stock on Tuesday. Uh, So talk about Ford then. That's quite a big drop. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, let's just say it again. For Ford, this was the biggest drop in its stock in 11 years. And what they did is revise guidance for the current period because inflation around the world is meaning higher costs for them and supply chain pains continue, missing there are, meaning there are part shortages, real part shortages. The net result, there are 40,000 to 45,000 Ford SUVs and pickup trucks sitting in a parking lot somewhere that are not ready to ship to customers. Now, the important point Ford reaffirmed its full year guidance and said that they'd be able to get the missing parts back, put them in these vehicles and sell them by the end of this year. But clearly the market didn't believe them when you look at the severity of that stock drop. Is it semiconductors that are causing the, the real pain here? Yeah, it, this is fascinating because in the, in the statement, Ford didn't say very much at all. They didn't specify. All we have to go on is that semiconductors have been an issue throughout this year and even before that. GM earlier in the year in July kind of gave a similar warning that, that they had these this inventory of non-shippable cars because of missing parts and semiconductors were a part of that. So we don't have the specifics. We knew that in some sections of the semiconductor market, specific types of chips were improving. Inventories were starting to build up. But we hope to get that granularity when Ford actually reports earnings next month. Because remember, this was them front-running it. This was a prelim uh, uh, update to their guidance. All right, Adlelo. Trends, I know you will continue to follow. Thanks much. The Solana Foundation has released the, third, released the third edition of its Energy Impact Report. Solana's overall emissions rose roughly 26% in the past six months, driven by overall growth in its validator network, the number of computers running the blockchain, and the addition of e-waste emissions in this analysis. Here to talk about that and more, Solana Labs co-founder Anatoly Yakovenko, as well as our own crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Uh, Anatoly, thank you so much for joining us. How do these numbers strike you? Um, I think Solana's doing great. If you look at the overall energy per transaction, it's, uh, you know, for raw transaction, it's less than a Google search and maybe two to three, you know, Google searches for an expensive one. Um, it basically is as good as using a, a Web2 service, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. So at this point, what further steps can be taken to reduce energy use on the Solana blockchain that you're not already doing? Well, as the network matures and uh, with every release it gets faster, that makes it more energy efficient. As well as every hardware release, you know, when Intel or NVIDIA release their next generation computers, those are more energy efficient. So this will naturally get cheaper and faster and more energy efficient over time. 
How big of a deal is this becoming to investors? Because you find that people who believe in Bitcoin are still relying on mining and you see Ethereum moving over to proof of stake. And so when you're talking to investors and people who are thinking about how these blockchains work moving forward, what's going to be the driving force that pushes people into more environmental concerns? I think this is important for a lot of applications that want to build Web2 services and attract new users because the users really care about energy, energy efficiency. So we see that uh, a lot of new Web3 companies really pick Solana because of this um, and, and really attracted to the, um, you know, our overall roadmap of how we're going to make the network even cheaper and faster and more reliable. And obviously we're a couple days away from the great merge from the Ethereum network, but what does that mean for you? Since that's happened, do you find that the competitive forces have changed by any means? Even post-merge, Ethereum is still uh, much less energy efficient the, than Solana. And uh, I think I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that Ethereum is moving to proof of stake because this will finally put the debate around whether proof of stake is secure uh, to rest. I think Ethereum doing this will really make it um, you know, prove, prove to everyone that this, uh, this technology is now mature enough to handle very large uh, you know, uh, capitalization for, for a network. How far could you go in terms of potentially rewarding the validators or computers that themselves use renewable energy? This is not something that we've looked at yet uh, because overall the Solana network uses so little energy that it's uh, you know, almost insignificant amount to, uh, to offset. Uh, Solana Foundation does its own offsets that covers the entire network. So when you look more broadly, crypto obviously, you know, it obviously gets a bad rap for its energy use. Do you think that's deserved? Uh, mining is definitely very energy intensive. Um, but folks need to understand that you know, Bitcoin mining would work in a world without any fossil fuels. And at the end of the day, it's the fossil fuels that are the bad part. Um, but it's obvious to me as an engineer that we should build technologies that are more energy efficient you know, if they serve the same function. So I am uh, definitely you know, bullish on Solana and its energy use uh, when compared to other networks. Other networks. If you think about also how NFTs have related to the Ethereum world versus Solana, there have been days that you're competing hard. In fact, there have been days that you see more NFTs really in, by, by dollar volumes tied to Solana even more than Ethereum. So how do you see that competition playing out, you know, when do you think and do you think you can be the more dominant player here? Uh, well, I want to congratulate Magic Eden, the company that's uh, the premier marketplace on Solana for its record-breaking volumes. Um, so Magic Eden has, show, has had volumes bigger than, I think, all of Ethereum's NFTs combined uh, on a couple days. Um, that's been amazing. I think because Solana is so cheap and fast to use that when folks experience it, they feel like they're using a regular Web2 application and it's really hard for them to go back uh, to using a, you know, older technologies. Um, I hope this trend continues and Magic Eden continues uh, to grow and uh, really accelerate NFT adoption around the world. NFT adoption, but NFTs and actually staking itself are something that are under the, you know, the eye of regulators, particularly the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. What type of regulatory risk is there for both of these you know, products, if you will, that are so tied to the ecosystem? Oh, I think folks need to be careful when they look at each NFT project. I think the vast majority of them are 
community-based, uh, you know, uh, things that are fun uh, and uh, build communities and, and brands around an idea of a, of a shared profile. And I think those are pretty far from what most folks would consider are a security. Um, but you still need to be careful. Now, you know, I have to ask you about the Ethereum merge. The Ethereum blockchain just went through this big major upgrade, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on it, if, and if you think it potentially makes a Solana blockchain less attractive, and how you imagine Solana staying competitive in you know, a changed world. Well, the Ethereum merge doesn't really improve scalability of the Ethereum network. Um, when you look at the, the number of transactions that Solana handles from applications and from users on a daily basis, that's more than not just Ethereum, but all the EVM, Ethereum-based blockchains combined. Um, so I think Ethereum has a long way to go on scalability. Just, just, does Solana have any plans for an upgrade down the line, or, or how, how are you thinking about that? Well, Solana is like Linux. It's a community-driven open source project. There's four teams uh, working on the Solana core already. And every release, the network gets uh, cheaper, faster, more reliable. So you know, it's, it has a roadmap like Linux. Just uh, make the next release better than the, cur than the current one. All right. Uh, Anatoly Yakovenko, thank you so much for joining us again, co-founder of Solana Labs and our own Shanali Basik. Appreciate it. All right. Coming up, how crypto and Web3 are colliding with mobile carriers. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Web3 
and 5G are colliding in a new deal between T-Mobile and the blockchain firm Nova Labs. T-Mobile has struck a five-year exclusive agreement with Nova for a new cellular experience. Nova Labs plans to launch Helium Mobile, which it calls the world's first crypto-powered mobile service, and that means customers earn crypto rewards for using the network while saving money. Here to explain, Amir Halim, CEO of Nova Labs and founder of Helium. So Amir, how does this work? So Helium Mobile is uh, the world's first crypto carrier, as you mentioned. Um, you can think of it from a consumer point of view, very similarly to an existing mobile plan. You sign up, uh, we have a nice app that you'll use, heavily, we rely heavily on eSIMs, so it should be a very seamless sign up. Uh, but the key difference is that users earn cryptocurrency while they're using the network in the form of uh, mobile tokens. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, they get to actually build and own the infrastructure that they're using. So you can think of this similarly to Airbnb or, or Uber or something like that, where uh, you're not only a user of, of the network, but you're also part of the infrastructure and part of building it at the same time. So if you want to use this, how do you sign up? So first of all, there's a wait list to join. So you can go to hellohelium.com. Uh, that's the first step. Uh, once we are once we launch, which is uh, aimed for Q1 next year, there'll be a mobile app that you can use. Ideally, if your phone is eSIM compatible, that's kind of all you have to do. You'll just install the app, you'll get going, and the eSIM will be downloaded straight into your phone. Um, if you have an older phone that doesn't support eSIMs, then uh, you will we will send you a physical SIM and you'll be able to use it that way. Talk to us about the challenges of creating a crypto-powered mobile network. You know, how is this even possible and, and what kind of troubleshooting are you going to have to do? We proved with the IoT network uh, that we launched in 2019 that people-powered networks are a real thing. Uh, I don't think people believed it was doable at the time. We launched in Austin with only 150 hotspots and within three years there are now a million um, of these hotspots across the globe. Uh, building an IoT network designed for sensors and low-power devices. This next step is moving into the cellular world, so uh, primarily targeted at cell phones. Um, and we use roughly the same tactics, right, which is that people have shown us that they are interested in participating in the infrastructure and not just being a user of a network. They want to own the, the, the thing that they use. Uh, and so we'll you know, do roughly the same thing that we did in the last go around, which is that people are incentivized to build and install what are basically uh, miniature cell towers uh, on any property they have access to. And they get rewarded in mobile tokens for doing that when people use their hotspots. And, you know, obviously Helium is well known for its long fi network, which helps connect low power devices like pet tracking collars. I'm curious, you know, with this next step, what else could be possible using this technology? The next, I mean, the, the cellular network is sort of the next logical extension of what we're doing. When we designed Helium back in 2017, cellular networks were, were on our radar as a thing to do. Um, the technology and the regulatory environment has allowed us to now do that with, with unlicensed spectrum that we could use. Uh, in the future, I think you can expect to see uh, other types of wireless network get built this way. So there'll be an opportunity for Wi-Fi networks and Bluetooth networks and VPNs. And, you know, Helium is very much a community-driven, people-powered network, uh, and people will propose what they want to do next. Uh, but we're super excited about what we're doing here with Helium Mobile. It's really the world's first attempt at trying to do something like this uh, with a hybrid, people-powered, and traditional network combined. You've also sw considered switching Nova Labs to the Solana network, and given that we were just talking to the co-founder of Solana, where did you end up on that? 
So the Helium network is governed uh, by its users. So there's a community-driven process for proposing changes. Um, there is a proposal in the community. It's called HIP70. Uh, it proposes to re-architect the way Helium works to separate the architecture to be a little bit simpler, to be a little bit faster. And as part of that, we're also proposing moving um, the blockchain function to the Solana network, primarily because of exactly what Anatoly was describing. The cost to use the network is extremely low. Transactions are extremely fast. And there's a very diverse and large ecosystem of developers and DeFi, NFT, and other applications that we don't currently have access to on the Helium network. All right. We'll, we'll keep watching how this all unfolds. CEO of Nova Labs and Helium founder Amir Halim, thank you for stopping by. YouTube is doubling down on the creator economy, announcing new paths to partnership for creators and launching revenue sharing for shorts. This announced during their Made on YouTube event earlier today. Let's break it all down with my next guests, Colin Rosenblum and Samir Chowdhury, known simply as Colin and Samir, on YouTube itself. They are the creators helping the next generation of creators learn and understand what works on YouTube and how to build successful long-term careers there. They were part of this event earlier today and join us now from Palm Springs. So Colin and Samir, thank you so much for joining us. Colin, let's start with you. Um, you know, there are new benefits to creators here. Creators can start making money earlier. Creators can more easily find the music that they want and then integrate that into their videos. How did this all land with you? How much of an improvement is this from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a huge improvement. For us, there's already an incentive for us as creators that make long-form videos to post shorts because we find a lot of distribution. We find a lot of audience. You know, we don't necessarily rely on it for monetization, but now that is something we can focus on. And I think, you know, when I look at this announcement, it's really just about the fact that now there is a light bulb that can go off for a lot of new creators that, you know, they can get paid by the platform and they can start building a career. That said, YouTube is also upping its commission for shorts, taking 55 percent. I believe that's up from 45 percent. Samir, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the reality of it is that on shorts, there's a little bit more nuance than long form content, especially when it comes to music. Um, you know, music is a big part of short form content and YouTube has decided to take on the cost of music on behalf of the creators. So, you know, at a glance, when you look at it, you say, okay, wait a second, you know, this is a flipped version of what we're used to. YouTube typically takes 45%, but you know, what they're doing is actually allowing creators to use music that they couldn't use before and, and covering a license fee for that. So in my opinion, you know, when you look at it, the cost they're incurring, I think it, it makes sense. Um, that in this specific instance, it's SWIFT. Colin, there are a lot of platforms out there, a lot of platforms vying for your time and the time of other creators. What didn't you hear from YouTube that you would like to hear? To be honest, I was really excited about uh, the opportunity for revenue sharing on Shores. I do think it's super important that, you know, we are going businesses here as creators uh, and, and we do want to be partnered on a holistic level with the platforms that we're using. I think what will happen as this rolls out is more creators are going to want a lot of transparency about how the payments are doled out because YouTube has always been really transparent. Um, and so I think that's what we're going to see is like a, a true understanding broken down from the creator side of how we're getting paid. Now, you're both on YouTube and TikTok. As creators, Samir, why don't you take this one? How do they compare and what do you make of the competition between them? 
So I, I think there's one fundamental difference between the two platforms that like, you know, we've been on YouTube for 10 years and in those 10 years, you know, we've always been in partnership with the platform. Um, the difference is that when we make money, YouTube makes money and vice versa. Uh, and that, that's truly a partnership. When it comes to TikTok, you know, and their fund, it's never really felt like a partnership. Uh, it's, it's very unclear how you build a career on TikTok, um, specifically when it comes to platform payments. Um, typically, we've seen people build audiences on TikTok and then transition them to YouTube to, to build their careers. So in my opinion, when you look at this, and again, from our experience building a career on YouTube, there's a different depth of the audience. And there's also a different depth of uh, platform engagement um, when it comes to how the platform actually pays you. And then again, I think, or additionally, I think when you look at TikTok, a lot of people go to TikTok for the For You page. They're not necessarily going for specific creators. If you take the top creators off of TikTok, it's still enjoyable on the For You page. Uh, but if you go to YouTube and you start taking off the top creators, YouTube's a totally different place. So I think YouTube is a lot more creator focused and that comes across in the way that they pay creators. So, you know, as you think about where to invest your time and your money, uh, Colin, how do you see the creator economy evolving? How, you know, how are you watching? I mean, there seems to be new opportunities, new platforms, um, new ways of reaching fans every day. Um, you know, how are you making those calculations on a daily basis about where to spend your time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's no doubt that the majority of creators, you know, their primary business is advertising based, uh, whether that's being paid by a platform like YouTube or working with brand sponsors. And I think, you know, what's already happening but is going to increase is going to be more direct to consumer where creators are launching their own brands and their audiences have a loyalty to them and not necessarily some of the legacy brands that we know. You guys uh, also do a podcast series called Creator Support. You answer questions from your audience of creators. What are, what are they most concerned about right now, Samir? Man, Emily, I'm so happy you brought up creator support. That's so great. Um, you know, it's really fun because we get to we get like the pulse of what the problems are for aspiring creators. And what's really important to to note is that this is the land of creative entrepreneurship, and a lot of these you know, young creators are first-time entrepreneurs. So a lot of the questions we get are around like pricing. How do you price yourself? Um, you know, legal. How do you review contracts? What should I be looking out for? Um, taxes. How do I do my taxes as a creator? So a lot of this stuff comes down to just fundamentals of entrepreneurship. And I think that's what's really important is that if you're looking at the creator economy, you know, this is really just a form of entrepreneurship. Uh, it's, it's media first entrepreneurship. And I think that's what's really important to recognize. The problems that we're facing in the creator economy are the same problems that, that young startups face, that young entrepreneurs face. Um, so that's what we see a lot on creator support. And then I think beyond that, it's a creative business. So you do get a lot of questions around purpose, right? What, like, how do I, how do I lock into something that I can do for the next five, 10 years, not just, you know, get myself involved in a viral trend or something that's happening right now? How do I actually turn this into a long-term sustainable career? Um, you know, and some of that is yet to be seen. Uh, but the, the creators who have done that for a really long time, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, ability to evolve as platforms evolve and as changes, you know, are made to the platforms like what happened today with YouTube. So, Colin, what's one piece of advice for, you know, the aspiring content creators out there? A piece of advice that's not obvious, especially after seeing these changes from, from YouTube today? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a question that we get a lot. And what Samir just brought up there, you know, about purpose, that is actually like what the advice is that I always give is that 
you know, if you're going to be a content creator, make sure that you have a true understanding of why you're doing it. Who's the audience you want to serve? If you were to take social platforms away, you know, what are the communities that you're existing in in real life? Because, you know, it's important that you always have that base level understanding that what you're doing by making media online is actually just like speaking to actual people and providing them some values. So I always encourage new creators, start with your IRL life. What are the communities you're a part of? Who are the people you want to serve? And then once you know that, uh, you'll have a much longer trajectory as a creator. I like that. Hashtag IRL. Uh, That one makes sense to me. Uh, YouTube creators, Colin Rosenblum, Samir Chowdhury, thank you both uh, so much for joining us. You can catch them on YouTube and TikTok. (laughs) And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up Wednesday, Lara Hippo Managing Partner Eric Hippo will be joining us. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.